Good morning. We are continuing our series in First John, and we're almost done, guys. This is part nine out of ten parts. And so next week we're going to finish, unless we for some reason don't get through all of this week's text, and that's possible. But we're almost finished with First John, and after that, for those of y'all who are listening to our podcast, we're going to start talking about Revelation soon. And we're going to go through Revelation, but we're going to kind of divide it up a little bit to where the overcomer passages, which are given in the letters to the seven churches, we're going to look at those on another night. So we're going to talk about that on Friday nights, probably. And Sunday, we're going to start in Revelation 4. So that's where the future events of the book are taken up and discussed um, and first described in the heavenly throne room scene. So we're going to start there and then we'll go through the rest of the book of Revelation. And I think that it's great for us to do that because I think that Christians, a lot of Christians, not all, but many are looking at the way things are going in the world and they're wondering, could we very well be in the last days? And I think that we are. I don't believe in setting dates. Jesus told me not to do that, so I'm not going to, but I think that we're getting close. We can read those signs. So we're going to get to that soon after we wrap up 1 John 5. But today, the title of this sermon is The Fellowship's Empirical Foundation. So this whole book is about fellowship with God. It's addressed to believers. This is not telling them how to get saved. It's talking about what you're supposed to do as a Christian once you get saved. And so we're now talking about the empirical foundation to the gospel. The word empirical has to do with something that can be uh, experienced with senses, physical senses. And so we're going to look at some of the things that John describes here that serves as physical proof for the gospel. Now, he was reacting against a certain type of heresy called Gnosticism. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, the Gnostics believe that Jesus was not the Christ, that he had the Christ spirit anoint him. So Jesus was just an ordinary man. Many of the Gnostics denied the virgin birth. They said that he was just an ordinary son of Joseph and Mary. Uh, some believe that perhaps he was the illegitimate offspring of Mary and uh, a Roman soldier. That was a Jewish tradition that was created to uh, really cast doubt on Jesus' identity, I think. But the idea was Jesus was fully man, no God at all. And that at his baptism, the Holy Spirit anointed him and the Christ Spirit came upon him. And the Christ Spirit left him when he was crucified on the cross. And so that was the Gnostic belief. John is obviously, y'all excuse Jamie, John was obviously reacting against that. And so that's going to come up. We talked about that before a little bit, but I wanted to give you a review. So now let's look at the text. Starting in verse 6, so John 5. Verse 6, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that beareth witness because the spirit is truth. And so what we're going to talk a lot about this morning, if Jamie permits us to talk about it, is that this text revolves around witnesses. You have heavenly witnesses and you have earthly witnesses. And the earthly witnesses are here introduced to us. So for your notes, the first point is the witnesses of the earthly testimony. So that's the first point that John is talking about, that there are earthly witnesses to Jesus being the Christ in the sense that we as Christians understand it. So Orthodox doctrine says that Jesus is the Christ, meaning 
he is God in the flesh, that he was sent down from the Father. He was sent down from heaven. He's the eternal Son of God that was born of the Virgin Mary. And he came through the virgin birth and also through his death on the cross to atone for our sins. The resurrection really isn't taken up in this particular passage, but of course, John taught the resurrection elsewhere, so he doesn't have to talk about that. Right now, he's going to highlight the physical nature of Jesus, that Jesus was not a mirage. There were some Gnostics called the Docetic Gnostics who believed that Jesus was a ghost and that he appeared physical, but he wasn't physical. And there was a story that when Jesus would walk on the beach, he wouldn't leave footprints because even though you're seeing him, he's not actually physically present. He's only spiritually present. So that was an idea that came later. At this time, the Gnosticism they're reacting to is probably the idea that Jesus is just a man. And so the Christ is not one and the same with Jesus. So when we call Jesus the Christ, we're not saying that Jesus um, had a Christ spirit, a heavenly spirit come upon him and make him the Christ. And he was only the Christ as long as the Holy Spirit had anointed him. That's what the Gnostics believe. We believe that Jesus is the Christ from the moment he was born of the Virgin Mary. Now, of course, he was the Christ in promise. Christ means anointed one. So Jesus was anointed before the foundation of the world chosen to come into the world to save us from our sins. He was personally preexistent for all eternity as the Son of God. But Jesus fulfilled his divinely appointed commission as Christ when he came into the world and took on flesh. So in John's mind, Christ is the Son of God incarnate. That's what Christ means. And so to illustrate that, John gives certain proofs. So the earthly testimony to Jesus being the Christ is what's being taken up here in verse 6. So let's look at it. There are three witnesses, water, blood, and the Spirit. So let's look at each one. And these are really, really insightful. It's fun to study these. Uh, to get into it, I found there are lots of different interpretations among Bible scholars, respected ones. Evangelicals even uh, have different opinions about this particular text here. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the principal views are, as I found in the commentaries, and I'm going to give you what I think is the best one, in my opinion. Okay, I could be wrong about this, but uh, many people believe that water is referring to the baptism of Jesus. So Jesus was testified to be the Christ at his baptism. He didn't become the Christ, but he was testified to becoming the Christ, or sorry, being the Christ at his baptism. So John saw the Holy Spirit appear and Jesus, you know, had the Holy Spirit come upon him in the form of a dove. Y'all are familiar with this story, I'm sure. And that was a moment in Christ's life where he was declared the Christ, declared the Son of God. This is the one. This is what God was telling John the Baptist. This is the one. When you see the Holy Spirit descend upon this one and remain on this one, you know that is the Christ, that's my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So many people believe this happened at his baptism. Um, however, many people don't think that. They think that water here refers to Jesus' birth. Now, to illustrate that, I'm going to uh, go back to John, because he wrote the same book that bears his name, right? So John chapter 3 some things are said here that sort of support this idea that when it talks about water, it may be referring to the virgin birth or really just birth in general. Obviously, John taught the virgin birth. Um, it's implied, even if not explicitly stated. He didn't have to explicitly state everything if it's in another gospel that he approves of. But in John chapter 8, verse 38 and verse 41, it, the virgin birth is implied in those texts. The people thought that Jesus was illegitimate. 
Um, Jesus was not. Um, he was heaven sent, born of the Virgin Mary. But anyways, I don't want to get too sidetracked by that. There are a lot of scholars who will say John doesn't teach the virgin birth. And they make a big deal out of it. Like, oh, you got some gospels that teach the virgin birth and some that deny the virgin birth. Well, just because John doesn't mention it explicitly doesn't mean that he doesn't believe in the virgin birth. I think it's funny how biblical scholars, if they have a PhD after their name, can make a claim like that. And all of a sudden it catches on and people find it really insightful. Ooh, John doesn't really talk about the virgin birth explicitly. So that must mean John's Christianity is a different type of Christianity. So now you have multiple Christianities. Like, would y'all follow that logically and say that makes sense? I don't think so. I don't think it does. But anyways, that's what some people believe. But anyways, go into John chapter 3. Um, in this passage, very famous because it talks about being born again. Jesus says in verse 6, we're in John chapter 3, verse 6. Actually, we can back it up to verse 5. Okay, so John 3, 5. It says, Jesus answered, verily, verily. I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And verse six says that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So there is a parallelism here between verse five and six. In verse five, it mentions that you have to be born again of water and of the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Well, we get the spirit part that's being regenerated when the Holy Spirit comes into us and indwells us. But what does water mean? Some people think that water refers to the spirit as an analogy. So the Holy Spirit washes away our sins. So water and spirit are essentially synonymous. But verse six seems to break it down for us. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So flesh corresponds to water in verse 5, and spirit corresponds to spirit. So there are two different types of birth in John's view. There would be a birth of water or flesh, which is your first birth, natural birth, and then there is the supernatural birth, the second birth, which comes to the spirit. So if this is the case, if this is the proper interpretation, then that would mean that in 1 John, because most people believe there's a parallel between 1 John right here in this text when it talks about water and the Spirit, and then John 3 talking about water and the Spirit. Most people think that they are parallel to each other in thought. So if you understand one, you're going to understand the other. So if in John 3, water represents physical birth, then what John would be saying in 1 John is the three witnesses to Jesus being the incarnate, fleshly Son of God, okay, having taken on flesh, those three witnesses would be physical birth, which is viewed as a water birth. Now, that may seem bizarre to us today, but in ancient times, it was a common analogy for birth. And I'm going to give you some proofs for that. If y'all want all this information, uh, for those of y'all that are in here physically, I can give you these notes if they're not already on your notes, because I do have some stuff here that's not on yours. But the notes give these references, Job 38, 8 through 11 and also Job 38, 28 through 30. These are some references from the book of Job that indicate that water and birth, or water coming from the womb uh, right before a child is delivered, that is in the Hebrew mindset, the idea of birth being associated with water, like the water breaking first. So some people say that wasn't believed in ancient times, so to say that water here refers to birth is stretching things. There's actually a number of references 
uh, that do support this, even outside the Bible. So there are some references in Job there to establish it, but you could go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, Fourth Ezra is another book that gives some references to this concept. So the idea of a water birth being a reference to the physical birth that everybody experiences, uh, I think there is some support for that view. So here, John's saying Jesus was born physically. So he's not a mirage. Okay, he's not a, a spirit being who just appeared to be here, that he was actually walking and talking among us because he took on flesh exactly like us. So without sin, obviously, as the New Testament authors state uh, emphatically, he was without sin, but he was fully human. Now, of course, if you were to go back a little bit, John's already said this in other words. Um, and let me uh, find this real quick. It's in uh, chapter four, verse two. He says, hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. That was clearly something people were denying back then. They believed Christ was a spirit being. And they're not wrong about that, right? We could say, yes, Christ existed in spirit as the eternal son of God prior to being born of the Virgin Mary. But the problem was Gnostics were denying that the Christ, the spirit being who preexisted, actually took on flesh. Then that was scandalous. Because a spirit cannot enter into the fleshly realm. It, the spirit cannot take upon flesh. That was considered heresy to the Gnostics. And John says, I don't consider or care if you consider it heresy. That's what happened. Jesus Christ came and became one of us. Like it says in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the first witness is that of water, Jesus' physical birth. And the virgin birth, as I already said, would be implied there. And then you have blood. What does blood represent? Well, that's easy. And there's no disagreements about that. Blood represents Jesus's death. So he passed into our world. The pre-existent son of God came into the world through water because by the blood. and blood. So in fact, there's actually some prepositions used here in Greek. It's through. So he passed through physical birth and he passed through death. So he went through both of those experiences and John's saying this is proof that Jesus is a physical human being. Okay. Yes, he's spirit, but he's both. You cannot subtract one or the other. There are people that will take away Jesus's preexistent deity. They'll say he's not really the son of God. When he was born, that was the beginning of his existence. They are wrong. Jesus existed before. He is the word who was with God and is God. But it's not just that. Some people will say, like in ancient times, maybe not too much today, but yes, Jesus is, you know, a spirit, but he didn't take on flesh. So they, they'll imagine Christ being a total spirit, no mixing with the flesh involved, no incarnation taking place. Sort of like what happens with the angels, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. They would understand it in the same Jewish context that yes, angels can appear uh, on the physical realm, but they don't actually become a human, they just take on human form. And while Jesus did do that, obviously many times in the Old Testament, he took human form, he was actually incarnated and he was born as a human being. So this is something unique that the Jews would have considered scandalous. And a lot of people think the, the Gnostics, they were you know, sort of a bridge between the pagan Gentile world and the Jews because there were a lot of Jewish Gnostics, by the way. There, there were a lot of Jews who um, would say, yeah, maybe we don't have so much a problem with Christ being conceived as an angel, like the idea that, um, 
you know, Jesus was like the Archangel Michael, something like that. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. They wouldn't have a problem with that as much as Jesus actually was born as a man. Jesus actually died on the cross and actually rose again. That makes Jesus fully human like us. And so the idea that Jesus was fully human was a problem for people back then. And that was because they thought that the spirit was pure and physical was dirty. Now, that's not true. Now, it is true that the flesh has been corrupted because of sin, right? But when God created Adam and Eve, they were physical, weren't they? But they were very good. So the idea, the Gnostic idea that spirit's good, the flesh is bad, like physical is bad across the board, that is not taught in Scripture. But that was a belief that was going on back then. So water represents physical birth. Blood represents his death on the cross for us, which cleanses us from all sin, as it says in 1 John 1. And lastly, spirit is the one who beareth witness first of all. I would say the Spirit's left here last because the Spirit is really the chief witness. How do we know for sure that Jesus was 100% man, born of the Virgin Mary, and did die on the cross for our sins? How do we know that this gospel content that the apostles taught is true? John would say the Holy Spirit. This goes back to John chapter 6 when it talks about no one can believe in Jesus no one can come to the Son unless they are drawn by the Father. I 100% believe that. I believe that people naturally do not seek after God. Now, this is where some people would disagree with me. I do think you can resist that drawing. I think that's actually explicitly taught by John himself when it talks about how the people refused to listen, Jesus and his ministry. Uh, they were refusing to listen to the Holy Spirit first. That's the reason why they rejected Christ, because they didn't listen to the testimony of the Holy Spirit to them concerning the Christ. Uh, in Luke, it talks about how the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected, nullified, in fact, God's purpose for themselves by not listening to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was meant to prepare their hearts. And so instead of listening to John and their hearts being softened so they could hear Jesus and believe, they hardened their hearts. So what happened? It says they nullified God's purpose for themselves which means God was trying to speak to them, but they refused to listen. Uh, Stephen, when he was talking in Acts chapter 7, I think verse 51, he says to the Sanhedrin, you have hardened your hearts. He says, you stick-necked stick people is what he called them. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's it right there. So if you want the doctrine of resistibility, the, the resistibility of God's grace, it's taught explicitly in Acts 7 verse 51. They resisted the Holy Spirit. So, but the whole point is, going back to the point, you have to be drawn by the Holy Spirit to believe. And a lot of people think that it's neutral, right? It's about logic. We can get on like this neutral playing field. We can have a, you know, an open, honest discourse with one another. And if the evidence is compelling from a rational perspective, then we will automatically believe if the evidence is there. But that implies that human beings are neutral and we're not. We're not neutral when it comes to God and truths about God. In fact, we are corrupt. We are depraved, which means that we naturally reject God. It, it is the tendency of our flesh, our sin nature to reject him. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to get our attention. Okay. It's like a kid who's wandering away. Okay. And when you call their name, they don't listen. So you have to shout really loud to get them to acknowledge you. Now, once they acknowledge that you are trying to get their attention, they can either A, listen to you, or they can B, turn back around and do what they were doing. And that's what happens with the Holy Spirit. He gets our attention. He shouts to us, spiritually speaking. And that's, I think, is what is being referred to here. So water is physical birth, blood is physical death, and spirit refers to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When John preached to these people initially, 
He's saying the Holy Spirit convicted you. So my version of the gospel, the apostolic version, not the later revised version that the Gnostics are teaching, my version of the gospel, you believed it because the Holy Spirit taught you. And if you want to see that expression in John says it actually says God will teach. Okay, he teaches, but we have to listen and we have to learn as in any form of education. And so those are the three witnesses. Now let's look at number seven, verse seven. The second point is the witnesses of the heavenly testimony. And guys, this we could talk about from a very textual perspective. We could get into the textual variants. I'm not going to do that. Okay, I'm going to say that God has kept this verse in a approved version that the people of God, the salt of the earth, the priest, priesthood of the believers, okay, they have had this verse and defended it. And while there are scholars today that are trying to undermine the reliability of verse 7, there is evidence to support it. And rather than going into all those details today, we could do that on another night. In fact, we're going through textual issues and translational issues on Wednesday nights. We probably will cover 1 John 5, 7, okay? But most versions are not going to include it. So if you have a New King James, an MEV, a King James version, they will include it. But if you have anything besides that, it's probably not going to include it. But I want to show you how this verse is so essential. Even apart from the copies that we have, the grammar itself requires the inclusion of this verse. So it says in verse 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Just as it says in John 10, 30, that Jesus and the Father are one, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, they are one. So it's the same Greek expression there. Okay, In fact, it's emphatic. One, they are. So that's put up front for emphasis. So the reason you can trust what John is saying here is because it is what God says. Now, that may seem <laughs> a, a little simplistic. God says it. But that's exactly what John is saying. He's saying that the water and the blood are physical proofs that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. And the Holy Spirit convicts you. But that Holy Spirit is serving, he is serving as an ambassador. Basically, the representative of the Trinity. He comes down and convicts people who are on earth. And what does he draw them back to? He draws them back to the truth that's already established in heaven. It doesn't matter what people believe down here, guys. It doesn't matter. It's already established in heaven. And that's what John's saying. He's like, I don't care what the Gnostics say. This is what God has said. And there are three that bear witness in heaven. And these three are one. So God is one. But God is Father, Word, and Holy Ghost. And so the witnesses in heaven, they ground the witnesses on earth. So this is the unchanging testimony of the eternal triune God. And I wrote this statement, hopefully it impacts you, but it impacted me as I was thinking it. Though we seem so far from God's throne sometimes, John is promising the readers that the gospel has the full backing of the King of Kings. You know, when it comes to stuff, guys, um, you generally give credence to people's authority, like people you know, right? If somebody talks to me and they make a claim, something that I've never heard of before, but they have authority in my mind. I trust this person. Okay. I know this person. Then that's the only backing that I need. They said it. Okay. I have a good reason to believe it. And John's saying, even though right now you're being surrounded by lies and deception, heresy, and these uh, people that are exalted in the eyes of the world, very wise people, maybe they have an education, 
Maybe they've gone to school. Maybe they, they seem to be philosophers. The gospel that I have preached to you, that you believed and you still believe now, that has the full backing of the Father and the Word and the Holy Ghost. And so what is said and stated in the heavenly realm, that's what matters. And so these are the witnesses of the heavenly testimony. Now look at verse 8. It says, And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. Now this is a really interesting translation here. It can refer to the Father, or sorry, uh, the Spirit, the water, and the blood agreeing together, saying the same thing. So they, they are uh, adhering to one another. They're saying the exact same thing. However, if you look at the Greek, it literally says these three are to that one. Now it seems kind of awkward, but read it for us in the MEV, Scott. So uh, there were three that testify on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are toward the one. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that would be a more literal translation of it. Um, obviously, the water, the blood, and the spirit don't disagree with each other. And so the idea is that they are together. They are one, obviously, but they are together and they're pointing back to something. This would be like, and I was sharing this analogy with Katie um, the other night. It's, a, it's like pointing to somebody and saying, hey, look at that. And then people turn and they look where you're pointing and there's nothing there. Okay. That's why this verse is so important in the text because all the modern versions, they do retain verse eight. And it says to that one, what one, what are you talking about? But verse seven, if it's included, that's what you're referring to. The earthly witnesses are pointing back to the heavenly witnesses. So the spirit that convicts us concerning Jesus's virgin birth and Jesus's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross and a number of other things. But those are the two mentioned here. The Holy Spirit that convicts us regarding the gospel is pointing back to heaven and saying, look, I am here representing the God of truth. This is the truth. Whenever a human messenger talks about the virgin birth or the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, the Holy Spirit is saying, this is truth. And this is truth that comes straight down from heaven. And so these, these witnesses, the water and the blood and the spirit, they together point back to the heavenly witnesses. Uh, another thing too, and this is maybe a little boring for you, but um, in Greek, the participle bearing witness is masculine. Um, it's masculine. Now, if you were to just keep verse eight, you have water and you have spirit and you have blood and neither of those nouns are masculine in gender. So what many people have pointed out is if you retain verse seven, you do have a masculine noun to make sense of the masculine participle. But if you take out verse seven, you have a disagreement as far as the grammar is concerned. So not only is there a, a necessity to retain the verse because it, it only makes sense with it. You have to have something to point back to verse seven is what you're pointing back to, but the grammar itself requires verse seven, because if you have verse seven, you can make sense of why the participle bearing witness is masculine. So anyways, the reason I share that to you, and you may not care too much, but the reason I share it is there are good reasons for retaining this verse. And sadly, they're not shared with people. When I was in seminary and I had a class on textual criticism and they talked about this verse, my professor said, Hey, y'all know this verse. And he showed it to us on the screen. Really good guy. I, I you know, love the man, respect the man. He was at my ordination, but he said, you see this verse? And I was like, yeah, it's a good verse. I love that verse. You know, I got that highlighted in my Bible. That's one that I share with people when I'm discussing the Trinity. And he said, well, 
that verse isn't God's word. And I was like, what? Like, I was really confused. I was floored by it. I did not expect that to come from him, but he went on to explain how textually speaking, there's not a lot of evidence to retain this. Well, guess what? He didn't share any of the evidence that I'm sharing with you now. That the interpretation requires its inclusion, that the Greek grammar requires its inclusion, and that there are good reasons to explain why the verse was taken out over time. Because of the Alexandria Gnostics. Well, I think the reason that it was taken out is because in the East, they had a big issue which involved uh, basically modalism. You know, the idea that the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit are one in the sense that you have one God who reveals himself in three modes. So there weren't actually three persons involved, just modes. It's like masks that you put on if you're on a stage play or something like that. That was the issue they were facing in the East. And the East is where they used Greek manuscripts. In the West, they used Latin. So it makes sense that in the East... Because of that controversy, there might have been a scribe who said, well, this is going to be used as ammunition by the heretics, by the modalists, so maybe we should put this in the margin or maybe we should take it out entirely. However, in the West, they used Latin manuscripts, and the majority of Latin manuscripts do include this. And it's very ancient, so what it will be said to you if you ever have a conversation with someone is, oh, the manuscripts that include that, 1 John 5, 7, are very, very late. Like, that's Middle Ages. But what they don't tell you is that there are Latin manuscripts and quotes by Greek church fathers that go back centuries before that. So it was around. And it's funny that in Northern Africa, there was a controversy. And this was quoted by the pastors in Northern Africa because they were dealing with Arianism. And Arianism said that Jesus and the Father are not equal with each other. So they tried to demote Jesus. Well, in Northern Africa, where they were having this big debate, you had pastors quoting this verse back in the 400s. So that's very ancient, okay? And in fact, the oldest manuscript that contains 1 John 5, I'm pretty sure that it's Codex Vaticanus, and there's something called an umlaut, okay? It's a, a word that basically indicates that there are three little dots in the margin of this old copy of 1 John. And if you look where those dots are, they're right next to where this verse ought to be. Now, scholars understand that those dots indicate that at the time this copy was made, there was a variant present. So that means that the person who made the copy did not include it, but it existed at that time. So the idea that this verse came about in the Middle Ages, which is what I heard said again and again by a number of people, it's a selective presentation of evidence. But... This is a very ancient verse, and again, in the West, they retained it in the majority of Latin manuscripts because apparently the Greek copies that they based their Latin version on included the verse. So this verse is an important one. Um, I don't think it's important just because it teaches the Trinity clearly. I think that you can find the Trinity taught clearly elsewhere without this verse. However, does it not bother y'all when a whole verse is missing from a certain Bible version? Like, it's funny that people try to get you to not be bothered by that when you're in seminary. It's like, don't be bothered. There's a perfectly good explanation. Calm down, calm down. It's basically what they're doing is saying, calm down. But I'm sorry, I can't calm down when we're talking about not just a word here or there, but entire sections of scripture are missing. And to me, it's like, I got to know, all right, which is the right one, because that's not a small change. That's a big change. In this case, this is one of those verses that most modern versions count. It's not authentic. 
It's common knowledge. It's not authentic. The majority say so, blah, blah, blah. But as I've shared with you, there is evidence that we should include it. And it's got a powerful message that the word of God is settled by God in heaven. Before it's even delivered to earth, before we are made aware of it on earth, the truth is not something we make. And today, isn't that so important with relativism? The idea that it's your truth. It's my truth. You know, we're human beings down here. There's no authority over us. There's no heaven to establish the truth. We just make up our own truth. But what this text is telling us is truth is established in heaven. And everything that we believe as Christians has been signed, sealed, and delivered by God from his throne. Now let's look at verse, um, or moving on to verse 8. We'll fill in the blank for that point. Point 3 is the unity of the two testimonies. I want to make sure that y'all get that before we move on. So the unity of the two testimonies. So the heavenly testimony and the earthly testimony perfectly agree. Now, verse nine says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his son. And wouldn't y'all agree that, I mean, that's pretty self-evident that God's witness is going to be greater than man's witness. So point four for your notes is the superiority of God's testimony. God's word is superior. We need a reminder of that today. Now more than ever that God specifically the son, because it's talking about the Christ here in the context, he is the logos. That's what the word means. When he's called the word in John 1, 1, it comes from the Greek term logos. And that's where we derive our term logic from. Jesus is the logic. He's the logos. And his mind is not free from the limitations of, of what we as finite beings experience. God's mind is infinite and unbounded. He knows all things. And so that's what John is stating here, that if we receive the witness of men, if you'll believe people when they testify to some truth, how could you not believe the testimony of God? So the question would run this way. Why should we trust John? John would say, I receive the truth from God and God's witness is greater than man's. And then somebody might respond, well, why should we believe that, John? Because the Holy Spirit tells you to. John 16, 8. That's what John's doing here. I'm not saying John couldn't make any other argument. But what John is saying here is, you trust the apostles because the Holy Spirit tells you to. That's the conviction that's mentioned in John 16, 8. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world. Verse number 10, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. So there are two responses to God's testimony. So point five is the responses to God's testimony. The first response is, well, we believe the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit internally testifies to the truth of our faith and we don't need to look anywhere else for a better foundation. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, some of our favorite verses. I know those are probably Nana's favorite verses. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways and he will direct your paths. And so what this is saying is when we believe, it says we have the witness in ourselves. And he's saying that to them. He's saying, I know that it's in you because I know you believed. You have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to discern the truth from error. And what the Gnostics are teaching you is error. And you know that. So continue holding to the truth that you are right now. Of course, the second response is you could refuse to believe the Holy Spirit when you're convicted. John 6, 44, again, no man can come to the Son unless he's drawn by the Father. You can resist the drawing of the Father through the Holy Spirit, and you can call God a liar. 
the Holy Spirit can say, stop, turn around. I've got something to tell you. And you could say, no, I don't believe you. I don't trust you. And you could turn around and go back your own way. Those are the two responses to God's testimony. Now, this is where it gets really good, guys. Verse 11. This is particularly for us because we in this room, we believe. In verse 11, it says, this is the record that God had given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So point six is the promise of God's testimony. The promise of God's testimony. The condition for having eternal life rests simply on having Jesus personally. And again, there's so many connections between this passage and John 6, I think. But in John 6, it's the father leads you to the son. It's like the father's introducing you to his son and says, he's the one you need to believe in. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's the one that pays for your sins. He's the one that gives you everlasting life. I sent him to do just that. Believe in him. And so having Jesus personally is how we have eternal life. So the question is, do you have Jesus? And many people can't even answer that question with confidence. And yet they've been going to church their whole life. I mean, John is saying here, again, let's look uh, back at the text. Um, In verse number 13, we'll skip ahead a little bit, but he says, These things have I written unto you that you may believe on the name of the Son of God and that you may know that you have eternal life. I mean, he's writing this saying that you can know you have eternal life. And if you were to ask an average evangelical, can you know that you're saved? They'd say, well, not really. I mean, I think that I am. But how can I really know? John's saying you can know. (laughs) So how do you know? Do you have the Son? It's that simple. Well, does the Son want me? I mean, does he want me? Yes, he does. Do you want him? And if you say, yes, I accept his gift, that's the promise. That is the promise of God's testimony. He says, I love you. I've done everything for you. I want to give you everything. Do you want it? Do you accept it? Like he was talking to Martha. Do you believe this, Martha? And she said, I believe. I believe that you're the Christ. It's that simple. And if you say yes, then you can say in the affirmative, I have the son. Well, you have the son. The son is eternal life. So do you have eternal life if you have the son? Yes. So anybody in churches that claim to believe in salvation by grace through faith alone, they should be able to say, I am saved. I have eternal life. And it's so key, guys, to our sanctification to know that we're saved. And by the way, this is a passive reception. It's not an active commitment. Active commitment is based on the reception of a gift. When someone gives you a gift, you're thankful. So what do you do? You commit to showing your gratitude to that person. But when you first get saved, is it I'm doing something for God or he's doing something for me? I'm letting him clean me. I can't clean him, clean myself. I I can't fix my own life. I, I I can't wash away the stains of my soul. So I simply say, Jesus, you do it. And he says, coming right up. And he does it in the blink of an eye, just like he's going to change us in the blink of an eye. Plus it says that the Bible says that there will be a change. There will be a change. Absolutely. In the person. Well, I, I believe that. Yes, I believe that it's impossible to be thankful. Or sorry, it's impossible to not be thankful when you get saved. I don't think anybody can get saved and look at it from a completely sanitized, critical perspective and say, oh, I'm saved. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, no one's ever going to do that, okay? So there will be change, but does the Bible tell us how much, how often? Does it tell us, okay, a person's going to obey this many times a day, this many days of week? It says a new creature. Yes, a new creature, and that happens instantaneously, okay? Uh, There's a new member of my family on the way. 
Okay, Jasher's about to be here. He's going to be a new member of the family as soon as he's introduced to us. I mean, he already is. In fact, he's already been conceived. He's there even if he's not in our arms right now. Okay, but is he always going to follow along whenever his parents tell him to do something? No, he's not always going to. Wouldn't it be great if he did? <laughs> it would be wonderful if he did, okay? But guess what? It's not going to happen. Jamie's like, right? are you talking about me? Today means righteous. He better. And every, ch yeah, every child is different. Every person has their own choices. So yes, I agree with you 100%, Steve. We're going to have change in our life. We're going to have a desire to serve the Lord. Uh, but there have been many times where I have known absolutely that I was saved and I sinned against God anyways. And I knew that it was wrong. I knew that I shouldn't do it. Uh, Jesus doesn't deserve that. He deserves so much more than what I was giving him at the time. And um, that did not invalidate or nullify the fact that I was saved. Now, let's move on to the last point here. Okay, so we read verses 11 and 12. Let's read verse 13. The last point for your notes is the assurance of God's testimony. The assurance. So we have the promise. So now we have the assurance of God's testimony. Verse 13, these things have I written unto you that you believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. It sounds kind of repetitive. So he's writing to them so that they may believe, but he's already stated that they have believed multiple times in this letter. So why is he doing this? Why would he write this to them? So that they know, so that they know that they have eternal life. He doesn't say, I, I write to you so that you may have eternal life because you have not received it yet. Okay, like there's a bunch of y'all that haven't received eternal life and you need to get that straight. No, he's saying, I'm writing this to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. This implies, guys, that the Gnostics were trying to take away their assurance. The Gnostics were saying, no, you need secret knowledge. You need to secretly develop your relationship with God, with the unknowable God. And the only way you can do that is if you listen to us. So trapped them in this, this philosophy. And that was where they were supposed to get their assurance is through their works or the level of knowledge that they had that they could only get from these Gnostics who were teaching them. So they were trying to rob these people of their assurance. And John's saying, no, I'm writing these things to you, contrary to what they're saying, telling you that if you want to know that you have eternal life, all you got to do is believe in Jesus. All you got to do is believe. And if you believe, then you know. They had already known at some point. But here they were starting to doubt because the question is, should I listen to John or these other people that are coming and saying, John's just an old man. He doesn't got it right. We've got these traditions from a uh, reliable source and you should listen to us instead. And so that made them question. Now they didn't go over to the Gnostics. There's good reason to suggest that um, from this text and others that they had not actually believed in the Gnostics yet, but that was the threat that they're going to doubt their assurance. They're going to doubt whether or not they can trust John. But he's telling them that they can know that they have eternal life just by believing in Jesus. And two, they can continue to experience the joy of their salvation by treasuring Jesus by faith. And I'll leave you with this quote here. This quote is by Buddy Smith. So take it or leave it. All right. Um, it goes as follows. It is this ongoing peace about our salvation that frees us to truly please God in our lives. First, legalism is prideful. And you can't please God if you're being proud. Second, legalism robs us of gratitude. And how can you express your gratitude by loving other people if you're constantly concerned about yourself and your own standing with God? Ultimately, by lowering God's standard of righteousness, legalism makes us incapable 
of truly pleasing God and loving others. I don't know about y'all, but I want to please God. I don't know about y'all, but I want to love others. I I don't want to worry about myself. I want to be freed from worrying about myself so I can worry about other people. And the key to doing that is knowing that you have eternal life because you've believed on the name of the Son of God, just as the apostles explain him, that he is fully God and fully man, and that he passed through the water, the virgin birth, and he passed through death, shedding his blood on the cross. So that way he could come back from the dead victoriously and give us this life freely if we just accept it. And that's the key to being sanctified. That's the key to obedience is letting go and saying Jesus has got it. And if you say Jesus has got it, then you're free. And in that freedom, you express your gratitude. And that's what life for Christians is. It's just a lifetime in eternity of expressing your gratitude to Jesus because he's already saved you. So hopefully that was a blessing to you and we will finish our study of 1 John next week. God bless.